All right. Man, I got to tell you, it is, um, it is so good to be back with you. My wife and I took the kids on about a 1,500-mile drive up the coast, up to Washington. We were gone for about two weeks, but we left on a Sunday and got back last Sunday. So it feels like I've been gone forever. And everyone's like, how was your vacation? I'm going, we didn't go on vacation. We took our kids. I call that a trip. On the drive back, Kathy and I are looking at one another going, dude, we need vacation. Desperately. So uh, we'll probably get a night away at some point, just the two of us, and, and pray that our kids don't tear the house down around themselves while we're gone. But I, I have missed you guys tremendously. I'm so excited to be with you this morning. And we are finishing the book of Acts today, which is a really big deal. I'm excited about it. We are in Acts 28, so if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me there. And as you're turning, I just want to, I want to step back a little bit and remind us where we've come from over these last several months that we've been working through this book. We started all the way back in Acts chapter 1 with Jesus showing up to this little group of followers who were huddled in an upper room in Jerusalem, terrified that what happened to their Savior, namely that he was killed for what he was saying, would happen to them. And all of a sudden Jesus shows up and says, listen guys, I am commissioning you to do what I have been doing. And I don't know about them, but I know for myself, if I had been in their position, I would have been like, I am not ready to do that. And Jesus knew that. So one of the first thing he says to them is, don't worry, I want you to stay here in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes, because you're not going to do this by yourself. You simply do not have that ability. So wait until the, the spirit that my father is going to send has come upon you. And once he does, then you will be my witnesses. The word there in Greek is marteros, from which we get the term martyrs. And most of them actually were martyred for their faith. But you will be my witnesses here in Jerusalem. And then in the wider region of Judea. And then to those untouchables out there in Samaria. And ultimately you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And then they waited. And about 10 days later, the Holy Spirit fell upon that group of gathered disciples and it emboldened them so much so that they, they went from hiding to coursing out into the streets and beginning to proclaim unapologetically that Jesus Christ was God's Messiah. The word Messiah is a Hebrew word that simply means anointed one, the one that God had anointed to lead his people and redeem them. The word in Greek is actually Christ. So when we talk about Jesus Christ, Christ isn't his last name. It's a title. It's an expectation of who he is and what he has done. And they began to proclaim this. And interestingly, that's, that first day they were able to do so in languages other than what they had learned, other than the languages they normally spoke, so that everybody who was gathered in Jerusalem that day heard the gospel message in their own language. And on that day, something like 3,000 people were added to their number. And the, the believers at first stayed in Jerusalem, encouraging one another. Some of them were selling property to help support others who had needs. They were loving on one another, having meals together, teaching one another, studying the scriptures, finding where all throughout the Old Testament, you know, Jesus is all throughout that. And as they did that, God continued to add to their number. And they found that they had favor with the people around them. That even though not everybody came to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they still were like, there's something about these people that's different. And yet, 
trouble was brewing there in Jerusalem because there was a, a contingent of the Jewish ruling party that looked at these early disciples and went, man, this is dangerous. This gospel they're preaching about Jesus being the Messiah, that is a dangerous spark. And if it catches flame, it could burn the temple down. It could burn what we, this kind of... Uh, relationship that we have with Rome who oversees us and gives us permission to continue to gather. It could burn this all down, so we need to stamp this out before it bursts into flames. And so they began to persecute these early Christians. And that persecution culminated with the death of the first Christian martyr, a guy named Stephen, who was killed because he unapologetically declared that Jesus was the Messiah. And that moment marked a turning point for the early church. Because up to that point that they had been okay just kind of hanging out in Jerusalem. It was comfortable. But in that moment it was like that persecution was like somebody grabbing the dandelion that was the early church and blowing them, scattering them to the breeze. And they began to scatter all over Judea, some of them into Samaria, and even beyond. And while we might look at that as a setback for the church, In reality, what it did is it actually propelled them toward God's ultimate goal and his plan, which was they were to be his witnesses, not just in Jerusalem, but in Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the world. And this is how that plan continued forward. And so these early Christians, they were the church. We oftentimes think of a church as a building, But the church is actually the people who have said yes to Jesus Christ and have the Holy Spirit in them. And suddenly they became the living embodiment of the churches wherever they happened to find themselves. And they began to share the gospel. And something interesting happened, something that was confusing to them. As they shared the gospel, they found that although the Jews often weren't responding, the Gentiles, which is just a big word for those who are not Jewish, they found the Gentiles were actually responding in droves. And not only that... But it seemed as if God was choosing the Gentiles as well because suddenly when they were sharing the gospel, sometimes the Gentiles would begin to speak in tongues just like they had done early on on that first day when they began to spread the gospel. They began to see the Holy Spirit moving on those people as well. And they went, wait a minute. You mean this God is not just the God of Israel? He's the God of everyone? You mean that, that Jesus isn't just the Messiah, the Redeemer of the people of Israel? He's actually come to redeem everyone? And this gospel isn't just for Jews, but it's for everyone. Now you step back and say, praise God for that, because otherwise most of us wouldn't be sitting here. And there was one guy in particular who felt called specifically to, to advance that gospel into places that it had hitherto not gotten. His name was Paul. And about the second half of Acts follows Paul specifically. And Paul's beginning was actually, he was an opponent of the gospel. He was the guy who was sitting in in agreement of and, and presiding over the stoning of Stephen, that first Christian martyr. He was opposed to the gospel because he believed it was a dangerous spark that needed to be stamped out. But then God got a hold of his heart and he became one of the most outspoken, effective proponents of the gospel in history. And much of what we have in the New Testament of the Bible, the second half of it, was written by Paul. And Paul did something a few weeks ago, the last time I got a chance to speak here. Paul, uh, we talked about how Paul would approach ministering and spreading the gospel. Because he couldn't just go into a region and then talk one-on-one with every single person. Even if he gathered groups like this, he still couldn't reach that whole region in an entire lifetime. 
So instead, what he did is, is practice that, something that I like to call spiritual acupuncture. If you ever go get acupuncture, you understand it. You have nerves all throughout your body, and you can't affect every nerve, but if you can find those nerve centers and you stick a needle into it, it ends up affecting the nerves all around it. And Paul practiced this culturally. He recognized that there were certain nerve centers all over the area. In each area, he would say, what is the place that is most influential? Whether it's Ephesus or Corinth or Athens. And he would go into that place and he would spend an inordinate amount of time investing in people there, sharing the gospel, knowing that if he could get a a solid, mature group of Christ followers there, it would end up affecting the entire region around it. And there was no greater cultural um, nerve center in all of the world at that time than Rome. Rome was it. And so for Paul, very early in his ministry, through many of his writings, he's constantly saying, man, I want to get to Rome. That's my goal. And yet, as that saying goes, the best laid plans of mice and men you know, often go awry. And it did for Paul, too. He had the plan of going there as an evangelist. He didn't realize he would end up going there as a prisoner awaiting trial. But that's exactly what happened. He was arrested. In the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at that lead up to him getting to Rome. Paul goes to Jerusalem. Through some, some misunderstanding, he gets arrested. And the Jews are like, we need to stamp him out. He is a danger. And so the Roman government protects him and puts him into custody. And then he appeals to Caesar saying, they, they want to kill me. I want to talk to Caesar. I want the opportunity to make my case there. So they say, okay, Paul. And they ship him off towards Rome. And on the boat ride there, he encounters this hurricane that threatens to take the whole ship down. And in the midst of that, God uses a hurricane and ultimately a shipwreck to enable God and Paul to spread the gospel to these sailors. And that's where we find ourselves in Acts chapter 28. Paul is sitting on some beach in Malta, on an island that he never anticipated going to, wet, sandy, probably exhausted, pretty cold, shivering a little bit, watching as the windswept waves pound the ship that was to take him to Rome into pieces. And yet, God had promised Paul, listen, not a single hand will be lost off of this ship. Not a single person will drown so long as they stay with it. And and that was true. Every single person got off the ship. Just the boat went down. Verse 1 of chapter 28. Once safely ashore, we found out that the island was called Malta. Now, I want you to notice that word we. Because the author of Acts, a guy named Luke, is actually traveling with Paul at this time. So he is an eyewitness to everything he's writing about here. He wasn't under arrest. He wasn't awaiting trial. He wasn't a prisoner. He was simply somebody who was traveling with Paul as a support. Verse 2, the islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered up a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper, a poisonous snake, driven out by the heat, fastened itself to his hand. And when the islanders saw this snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, dude, this man must be a murderer. Dude, there's something wrong with him. For although he escaped from the sea, the goddess justice has not allowed him to live. Now, just for a moment, can you imagine what Paul must have been thinking at this time? All right, God, hold on a second. You asked me 
to follow you. You asked me to be your representative. And what did it get me? It got me stoned and beaten. It got me arrested. It got me put into prison. It got me shipwrecked. And now, as if that wasn't enough, now snakebite? Okay. So Paul shook the snake off into the fire. And ultimately he suffered no ill effects. Well, the people expected him to swell up or to suddenly fall dead. And so they watched him and they waited. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds. And then they said, oh, he must be a god. What I love about that little interaction here is once again something that the world might say, oh, dude, that's bad luck. Or, or, or maybe somebody would point to it and say, how can you claim that God is good when he allows this to happen? Or there is no God. How could, you, how could it, this happen if there really was a God? And yet, God uses something that the world would shake their head at to advance his kingdom purposes. I think one of the, the misconceptions that many of us carry around in the Christian faith is that if we love God and we submit to him, then he will protect us from discomfort. Does that thought ever cross your mind? Yeah? It does mine. I mean, that's a, it, it's not something I, I've even taught that that's not the case. And yet still in the back of my mind, that's something where I go, if I'm good, then he's going to give me other good stuff. If I'm not good, then he's going to punish me. It's a tit for tat kind of thing. And yet we see time and again that that is not how God plays. He's not a vending machine kind of God where you do good, you get coinage, you get it, get it, put it in to get a blessing. And when you do bad, you ultimately get a bad blessing. I'm not sure that you would call it a bad blessing. And I think that might be, I don't know, you know what I mean. But here's the reality of our human predicament as Christ followers. We live in a broken world. And our God allows us to experience brokenness right alongside other broken people. We are not given a pass. And yet, the difference is, we don't experience the brokenness of this world the same way that those who have no hope experience it. We don't have to look at at the, the difficult things that we encounter through the same lens as somebody who believes that this is it. And once this life is over, that's it. Our circumstances do not dictate the outcome of our life. We have a hope that transcends our circumstances. And that is truly, truly good news. And so there are some of you in here who have gotten that phone call from the doctor that your, your labs have come back and yes, indeed, the cancer has returned. Oh, shoot, what now? And yet the hope that we have is that that cancer will not get the last word and whether in this life or the life to come, we will no longer be shackled by the brokenness of this world. The truth is that some of us in this room struggle I'd say all of us struggle with, with yearnings of the flesh that are contrary, we know, to God's heart. And we struggle against it. And some of us would, would be honest enough to say, yeah, I am addicted to things that I know are self-destructive. And yet the hope that we have is that in the midst of our 
our flesh at times getting control of us. It does not get the last word. And whether in this life or in the life to come, we will find ultimate freedom. Some of us are experiencing heartbreak because of breakdowns in relationship. And yet that doesn't get the last word. That's the hope that we have. Because for many of those sailors who don't know God, our circumstances are our reality. And we begin to view our life in a very myopic way, simply through the lens of what is good for me, and is this comfortable, and is this fun, or however you wanted to define that. But for Paul, he was able to step back and recognize that his reality was not simply, what am I experiencing right now? His circumstances were constantly changing, but it wasn't just about him. He recognized he was part of something far larger than himself. And so if God chose to allow him to die from a snake bite, God still would not have been unfaithful to him. Because I've already died to myself. I have been purchased at a price. So God, have your way with me. Help yourself to my life. I want to simply be used to advance your kingdom. And so this morning I got a phone call um, from, from somebody whose friend is dying of cancer. He says she's going in for surgery. And, and we prayed. And, and part of my prayer was, God, glorify yourself. My, my knee-jerk reaction is, God, take the cancer away. But really, at the end of the day, isn't our desire here, God, glorify yourself, God, advance your kingdom, and if that means you want to allow me to walk through this, well, then would you redeem that so that it would not be for nothing? That was the mindset Paul had. And regardless of what he walked through, God, your will be done. Help yourself to my life. And we see in this instance as in so many other instances throughout this book and throughout the rest of the Bible, that when Paul submitted himself to God, and rather than looking at it as, oh, woe is me, why are you allowing this to happen? He looked at his circumstances, he trusted God in the midst of his circumstances. And we see how our God redeemed those circumstances to advance his kingdom purposes. In this instance, the people go, who is this guy? He's not a murderer. He must be a god of some sort. And suddenly it gives Paul access to people he would otherwise never have had the opportunity to talk to. Let's look at verse 7. There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. This was the Roman official that was in charge of that island. And he welcomed us into his home and showed us generous hospitality for three days. Let's remember who Paul is. He is a prisoner. And yet he's being invited into the chief magistrate's home and treated as a guest? Obviously a snake bite was a little bit more eye-opening to people than, than we might realize. Now Publius's father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. And Paul went in to see him. Again, remember, he's a prisoner awaiting trial in Rome. And yet he's invited to go visit the sick father of the chief official on the entire island. Paul went to see him and after prayer he placed his hands on him and he healed him. And suddenly the word gets out, as it does on any small island. 
And everybody's like, did you hear? This guy, Paul, who claims to be a follower of, uh, of Yahweh, is, is healing people. And people start coming from all over the island to be healed. When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. Verse 10, they honored us in many ways, and when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed, and they sent us on their way. God used a hurricane, a shipwreck, and a snake bite in this instance to detour Paul away from where he was focused. His focus was Rome. Any way I can get to Rome, that's where I want to go. And yet God allowed something different to happen, a detour. I'm going to send you over here to Malta, and I'm going to allow you to minister here, and I'm going to allow some circumstances that on the surface are going to seem really uncomfortable and really crappy. And yet, I'm going to use those things to unlock opportunities for you to be my witness and to advance the gospel. Paul never intended to spread the gospel on the island of Malta, but God allowed it to happen through his circumstances. And then, after three months, Paul finally gets to go where he has longed to go the entire time, Rome. Let's look at verse 16 here. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. I love this about the Roman government. They see Paul and they go, listen, he is not a violent person. He's awaiting trial because of some religious thing. We don't need to clog up the, the prison with this guy. We don't need to pay for him on our dime and feed him on all that kind of stuff. So let's do this. Let's let him rent an apartment here in the city. We'll put him under house arrest. He might be a flight risk, that's true. So you know what we'll do? Is we're going to... Uh, make sure that there's always a Roman person, a soldier there to watch him at all times. Dee, can I help you? Can you help me for a second? Can you come here? I just want you to see what this would be like. This is how it worked. About every four hours, a different Roman soldier, you're looking very soldierly today, a different Roman soldier would show up. And they would pull out their chains... And they would handcuff themselves to Paul. I borrow these from Rich. He said he had the, the, the handcuffs, but no key. It's a good thing you love me. Yeah. yeah, I love you too. Could you grab my Bible for me? Thanks. No privacy? Thank you so much. Why don't you hold it? No privacy? No secrets? Oh, if you're going to do that, I'm going to hold your hand. I will go so far as interlacing the fingers if we have to, okay? We'll make this awkward. No privacy, no secrets. If, if he wanted to have people... The cool part is he could have guests over, but he could never get away from this soldier who's standing right at his side with chains. And so what Paul would normally do when he came to a city is he would first start going to the synagogue because he recognized in cultural acupuncture, you go to the people that speak the same language. You go to the people that have the same expectations, the same kind of, uh, you know, that are, that are as near to your thinking as possible. And you start there, the lowest hanging fruit. And then if that doesn't work, then you go towards others and you spread it out. And so he always would start with the Jews. And typically here's what would happen. Some would believe. Others would reject it out of hand and actually get hostile towards him. And then he said, fine, 
If you don't want to hear it, I'm going to go take it to the Gentiles. And then he would go out into the street and he would begin to share with Gentiles. Well, in this instance, he could not go to the synagogue. He was under house arrest. So instead, he invited them to come to him. Thank you. Verse 17. Can you put your hand down? This is more comfortable this way. Thank you. You're such a punk. I told you I was going to. Come here. Come here. All right. Stop. Can can we have a changing of the guards right now, please? (sighs) Three days later, he called together the local Jewish leaders. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, although I've done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and they wanted to initially release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. The Jews, of course, in Jerusalem objected. So I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. Remember that Paul is a Roman citizen. And as a Roman citizen, if he is in being tried for anything, he could always make an appeal to Caesar. And that's what he did. Hence, that's why he was sent to Rome. I certainly did not intend to bring any charge against my own people. But for this reason, I have asked to see you and to talk to you. I just, I want to talk. I want to explain where I'm coming from and what I'm about. It's because of the hope of Israel that I'm bound with this chain. Remember, there's a Roman centurion standing right there next to him as he's talking to him. Well, they replied, well, you know, we haven't really received any letters from Judea concerning you. And none of our people have come from, from there or have reported or said anything bad about you. But we would like to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking about this sect, these, these Christians, these little Christs, which is the derogatory term people were using at that time. We, we'd like to know more about this. Verse 23, so they arranged to meet Paul on a certain day, and they came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. Now the house is full. He's he's got an audience before him. And he witnessed to them from morning until evening, explaining about the kingdom of God and from the law of Moses and the prophets. He tried to persuade them about Jesus. The same approach he always took when he came to a new city. Start with the Jews. They disagreed amongst themselves, as they often did. I'm sorry, verse 24. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed amongst themselves and began to leave. Here's what ends up happening, right? I'm sure that Paul at this point is frustrated because it's the same old thing. I start with you guys. I share the gospel. I spent all day doing this. I'm pouring my heart out because I love you. And I want you to get it. And a few of you get it. But the vast majority of you don't. And you begin to kind of, you write me off because you think in your mind you already know what the Messiah is supposed to look like. You think in your mind you already understand what God is about and what he's doing. And because what I'm sharing doesn't fit into that mindset, you've stopped listening. You're unteachable. And so I think somewhat in frustration, Paul quotes the prophet Isaiah. And it's one you've heard before. He says, this is from Isaiah 6, Go to this people and say, You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's hearts have become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. 
Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. And with that, many of the Jews that are in that room go, we're done with you, Paul. And they leave. And we might go, shoot, man. Once again, Paul swings and misses. True, some people listened. My nose is itching. Can you scratch that for me? No. Thank you. Almost got it. Close. For two... Look at verse 30. Moving on. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house, and he welcomed all who came to him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. It was during this time that Paul wrote some of his most famous letters, that we call them the prison letters, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. Some of my favorite books of the Bible were written during this time when Paul had a Roman centurion strapped to his arm. And we might think, you know what, he, he swung and missed. That, that, that it was a waste of time. But I want you to think about this for a moment. That whole time, for two whole years, even if the Jews didn't listen, there were always people listening, including somebody who otherwise probably never would have stepped foot into Paul's space or listened, given him the time of day. And yet... These legionnaires, these soldiers were forced to listen to every word that Paul said. You're really... <laughs> Even if they didn't respect what he said, dagnabbit. So, you don't have to turn here, but listen to what he says in, in Philippians chapter 1. This is one of the letters he wrote while he was in captivity, while he was chained to this nincompoop. He said this, I want you to know... Brothers and sisters, that what's happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters, not all of them, but most of them, have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Thank you, Dee. You can go sit down. Hold on a second. I actually do have a key here. Let me get you out of here. I've never done this before. Hold on a second. Yeah. I've done this before. I might have to call on Rich in just a second. You, you've been through this before? Okay, go ahead and try to get out. Yeah, get out of here. Love you. For two years, that was Paul's reality. And we might say, man, what an unbelievably claustrophobic experience that must have been. Would Paul have chosen to have somebody strapped to his arm all time of the day? Probably not. And yet here's what I want us to recognize. God used that circumstance. And for Paul, it didn't matter what circumstances he found himself in. The call that God had on his heart never shifted. Oh, his circumstances shifted often. At one point, he is, he is dead set on crushing the gospel. Sure that he knows what's best and then God gets a hold of his heart. He finds himself blinded and God works through that blindness to begin to teach him. In his blindness, God actually helps him to see, interestingly enough. 
He finds himself at times making tents so that he can support himself. And in the midst of that, he continues to spread the gospel and he shares it with people like this guy Priscilla and his wife Aquila, uh, Priscilla and Aquila. And they end up becoming disciples who end up then taking the gospel elsewhere. Other times he finds himself going into cities and towns. And, and in Antioch, he was a pastor who was appreciated. He probably was very comfortable. And then all of a sudden God says, and now I want you to go and I want you to spread the gospel. And he begins to travel from town to town. In some places he's embraced and appreciated. Other places they try to stone him to death. At one point he finds himself imprisoned to protect him from his own countrymen, his own people. He finds himself wet and bedraggled, washed up on an island that he never anticipated going. He finds himself chained to a Roman soldier. And in every single circumstance, he never ceased to be an evangelist. He never ceased to be an ambassador of the hope that he had found in God. And I I have had a number of conversations with young men and women who are kind of at the beginning of trying to figure out their career. And so often one of the things they say is, man, I really want to serve God. And in their mind, they believe that that means that they have to become a pastor or have to be a missionary because those are the only two jobs that allow me to serve God. And yet, if anything, Paul's life shows us that God can use us in any and every circumstance. And so there are some of you in here this morning who are in a job that you absolutely hate. You sit in a cubicle, you push paper, and you say, what good does this do? Nothing. I'm wasting my life. And yet you sit next to men and women who would never think to step foot into this church or to any church for that matter. And God has placed you into proximity to them. And I simply want to remind you that this is not the church You are the church. And as you sit in your cubicle, you are the church. You are a representative of our God. But primarily through your actions, sometimes even through your words. And you guys are now back to school or about to be back to school and you're going to be sitting in your your chairs learning about things that you at times will wonder why it's even being taught. Will it have any bearing whatsoever on my life? I just want to get out of here so I can hang with my friends or go catch Pokemon or something else. And yet you sit next to other guys, other girls who would never step foot in here, who have no interest in listening to me or listening to Pastor Chris. You may be the only representative of Christ that they actually listen to. And you may be the only scripture that their lives read. I just wonder what they are reading in you, what your life is saying. And I've said this before, but we had this mindset of thinking that this is where ministry is done. And this this is a training center. This is an equipping place. At least I hope it is. But how does God reach single mothers who sit down at Harper Park any day of the week with their kids playing in the sandbox, he sends some of his daughters who are raising their own young children to go sit at Harper Park or any other park with them and to be an ambassador of hope through their actions, sometimes through their words. 
How does he reach students? He sends some of his kids to be students and sit next to them. He sends some of his kids to be teachers and to love on those children with infinite amounts of patience and to, and to reflect the love that they have found, to reflect the hope that you have found in God through your interaction with them. How does he reach random people at Starbucks? He makes you addicted to caffeine <laughs> and then sends you to Starbucks to go get your fix and hopefully to spread a little bit of love with your latte. I don't know. It doesn't matter what our circumstances are. You may be getting dialysis. And in the midst of getting dialysis, the person next to you who is close to death needs to hear the hope that you have found, needs to hear the gospel as you have seen it filtered through your life. It doesn't matter what our circumstances are. We are always going to be God's ambassadors of hope and reconciliation to a world that is hurting and sin-sick and desperately in need of hope. And I will tell you that we are standing here today. Well, I'm standing, you're sitting. But we're here this morning not just because of Paul's faithfulness. It's interesting that the, the book of Acts ends with these last two verses. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The end. And that feels abrupt to me. It feels like it's like, well, what's the next chapter, right? That's it? If I read a book like that, I'd be very disappointed. I want to know how it ends. But here's the beauty of Acts is that this isn't the end. It's simply the beginning. This is the end of the beginning. But I believe that we are actually living in Acts 29. That from the moment that that ended, when Paul spread that gospel, now mo every single one of those disciples, every single one of those guys that saw Jesus face to face, ultimately they died. But not before passing their faith on to other people. And those people died, but not before being obedient and passing their faith on to other people through generation upon generation upon generation for, 20, for 200 centuries. Is that right? Did I get that right? Probably 20 centuries. I think that's what it is. 2,000 years, 20, 20 centuries. Men and women have found a hope that transcends their circumstances. And rather than just holding on to it themselves and like Schmeagel going, my precious, you know, and holding on to it as their pearl of great price, they gave it away. They shared it. Because the beautiful thing about the gospel, the beautiful thing about the hope we have is we can give it away all day long and still have it. I got to sit with a man this week who just happened to find his way into church. Or into the, the church offices, and he says, I don't really have any faith to speak of. My, my parents kind of took me to Mormon church once or twice when I was a kid, but honestly, I have no real faith, and I just want to find hope. I just want to, I want to find what I'm living for. And can I tell you, in the hour and a half that I got to sit and talk with him, it encouraged me so much. I looked at him, I said, please don't think that you are a burden. This is a joy for me. It is one of the most wonderful gifts anybody can give to invite another person to walk with them. And I find such great joy in that. And so if you've got questions, please don't hold them to yourself. Please bless other people by allowing them to walk with you. 
let me just remind us that we're sitting here because of 20 centuries worth of people who were obedient to pass it on and now we have the same choice. Do I believe? Will I allow Jesus to be not only my Savior but my Lord? And then what will I do with that hope that I have found? Will I have the courage to pass it on? So that's the invitation, to be part of something much larger than us, part of something that transcends our circumstances. I want to invite the worship team to come back up. Something that transcends our circumstances. We get to be part of the kingdom of God. We get to be part of the restoration of other people. We get to be sowers of the seeds of hope that we have found. And I, for one, just say, please, God, use me. And I will be the first to say, I do not feel up to the task. It is bigger and more overwhelming than I could ever possibly do. And yet, thankfully, God has given us the Holy Spirit to do this. So, we don't have to do it by ourselves. We don't even have to have all the words. You don't have to have a seminary degree. You don't have to have all the answers. A very good answer sometimes is, I don't know, but let's go explore that together. Awesome. Do you know how many people want to hear the words I don't know because it'll actually help them trust you more? So I for one say, God, here I am. Imperfect, sinful, but available. Use me. And if you are willing to, to accept that same challenge, that same responsibility, that same opportunity to be an ambassador of hope, then I ask you to stand up right now. And standing up, you're not saying you got all the answers, you're just saying, I'm in. God, use me. And I just want to pray over us. And then we're going to spend some time responding to God. Father, I thank you that you don't give up on us. I thank you that you not only love us, but you choose to redeem us from the pits that we find ourselves in and then turn us around, clean us off, and send us back in to be your ambassadors of hope. And God, we want to do it. And God, we do not feel worthy. So we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would fall upon us this morning. That you would fill us up, that you would give us the eyes to see what you're doing, the ears to hear what you want to say to us, and a heart that is supple enough to be submissive to you and to say, God, here I am, use me, not for my own name's sake, not from, to build my kingdom, but for your name's sake, Jesus, and for your kingdom, God. May your kingdom come, may your will be done, first in my heart, then in my family, then in my neighborhood, then wherever else you've got me, for your name, Jesus.